Well, good morning. It's good to see you. It's great to be back. I do love coming here. I love your pastor. I love what God is doing in this church. And so every once in a while when I get to come, it really is a treat. My bio is in this bulletin, but just so you're aware, I'm one of the pastors at Redeemer in New York. And so not only do I love your pastor, but as a church, we feel a great affinity and connection to what God is doing out here. So I come bringing good tidings from that church. Well, today we come to 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to go ahead and read from the bulletin our text. should mention that I'm preaching from the NIV. I'm pretty sure the text that you have is from the ESV, which is appropriate. That's your Pew Bulletin, uh, Pew Bible, excuse me. But just so you know, as I'm preaching, I may use language that's a little different. And so apologies in advance. Uh, Hopefully it's clear enough. So there we are, 1 Corinthians 3. Please follow along as I read. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or the present or the future. All are yours. You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And that is God's word. This morning we turn to this passage from the book of 1 Corinthians. The people of Corinth were talented. They were moral. Outwardly speaking, they were very well put together. And yet, as you read through 1 Corinthians, you find that they're also a pe- people that inwardly speaking, you might say spiritually speaking, are a wreck. They're a mess. And particularly what's been taking place in the Corinthian church is that factions have been developing. Communities within the church actually warring against one another. I think on this Sunday after an election, we have to bear that in mind. As we think about a country and maybe even church communities in which there's division, there's factions. But Paul writes this letter, 1 Corinthians, and in our passage we see that he identifies the primary reason for the division, the schism, the factions in their community is pride. And in our passage today, Paul offers spiritual medicine, humility. The reason for your problems is pride, and the remedy is humility. Now, I don't think it's all that controversial to say that we, generally speaking, prize humility. We like people who are humble. We like being around people who radiate a certain kind of humility. 
There's something attractive and beautiful about that character. And I think if people were to ask you, would you like to be known as a humble person or a snobbish, arrogant person? Most of us would say, yeah, humility is what I'd like to be known by. And yet, though that's the case, we also know that we struggle cultivating humility in our own lives. It's part of our culture. In 1950, the Gallup organization conducted a poll in which they asked high school seniors if they thought of themselves as very important people. At that time, in 1950, 12% said, yeah, I'm a pretty important person. Gallup did the same study in 2005. Only this time, 80% of high school seniors said, yeah, I'm a very important person. And so reflecting on this trend, David Brooks, who writes for the Times, said that we now live in a culture that can best be described as the culture of the big me. The big me. A culture of self-promotion where everyone thinks that they are, in fact, the center of his or her universe. A culture of the big me. Paul's writing about this. What is a modern problem was also an ancient one. The reason for what you're experiencing, your challenges and your division is pride. And the remedy is humility, Paul will say. And it also informs the way we build a self-image. The way we as individuals and we as a church community view ourselves and our place in the world. So, what I want to show you this morning are three things. The prison of pride. The freedom of humility. And then last, how it is that we can become humble. The prison of pride. The freedom of humility. And how we can become humble. So first, let's start with the prison of pride. Here, Paul gives us a pretty fascinating picture of how pride works in someone's life. And we begin to see this in 321. Now, in my version, it says that Paul is commanding the Corinthians to stop boasting in their human leaders. I think it says in the ESV, make no boast in men. Now, what's going on? Here's what Paul's saying. In the Corinthian church the members of the church were lining up behind their favorite leaders. Paul planted the church years before he writing this letter. But as time went on, two other people were involved in helping the church grow. A guy named Apollos and a guy named Cephas, who you might know to be Peter. So Paul planted, but these other guys came along. And what happened over time is that people in the church started to have a certain affinity with these different leaders. So some people in the church said, oh man, we just love when Paul preaches. I mean, he brings it. Others were saying, "Mm, we really like when Apollos does those pastoral counseling sessions. I mean, he just gets me so well. And others were saying, no, we love having lunch with Peter. He's just so down to earth. He's so fun to hang out with. And so people are lining up behind their leaders. And it's creating factions and divisions. Now we ask, well, what's the problem with that? I mean, is it really all that troubling to actually find yourself connecting more closely with one leader than another? Not necessarily. But the real challenge for the Corinthian community is found when we look closely at this word, boasting. To boast in something does not simply mean you admire it. You respect it. To boast in something is actually to glory in it. To glory in something. It means... You find something beautiful and attractive. You put your identity into that thing. And then you begin to derive a sense of worth and confidence because you're associated 
with that thing. That's boasting. That's glorying in something. Let me give you an example. Some of you have a favorite sports team. You know that if you're at all invested in that team, your emotional state depends on how they're doing. If they're winning, you're elated. And if they're losing, you're totally depressed. And what happens, let's say your team goes all the way to the end of the season, they're about to win the championship, and they do. What happens the next day at work or with your friends? You don't say, oh, wasn't it so great they won? You say, we won. We won. We mean we. You were sitting on your couch. And yet, what's happened? You don't just respect them. You don't just admire them. You're boasting. You're glorying. You're getting a sense of identity and meaning and value in your life because you've identified with them. And their success has now become yours. Paul says that's boasting. It's pride. Now, we do this all the time. The human heart must boast. And there are two ways in which this boasting takes place in our lives. There is, on one hand, a corporate kind of boasting. This, you might say, is the kind of boasting that says, look at what I'm a part of. Look at the kind of schools that I went to. Look at the intellectual tradition to which I belong. Look at the political party that I ascribe to. We have to be extremely mindful of this right now. And what happens when you boast in things like this is you start to take meaning and value and identity based on the kinds of social institutions or networks or parties that you yourself feel like you belong to. And without even trying, you then start to look down on everybody else who doesn't fit in that circle. Or, not just corporate boasting, there is also individualistic kinds of boasting. This is not, look what I'm a part of. This is, look at what I've accomplished. Here we glory in our successes the things we've achieved, our image, and our talents. What I've done. Look at how many mountains I've conquered, so to speak. And here we begin to look down on people who have not been nearly as successful or as beautiful or as talented as we are. Corporate boasting, individual kinds of boasting. And what happens when boasting fills our hearts? Well, you see it there in verse 6. This is language that Paul uses to speak of what it means to be proud. He says, you become puffed up. The idea, it's actually a Greek word that's very vivid. It means something that's swollen. It's also used to describe something that's filled up with hot air. Paul's saying, your soul is now becoming swollen, inflated with hot air. That's pride. It's pride. You're boasting, you're identifying with things outside of yourself to give you meaning and value. And what's happening in turn is you look down on everyone else around you that doesn't fit within your little framework, your grid. Now let me show you, if you're doing that, if you're getting your self-image by associating yourself, whether it's corporately or individually, with things that are not God in order to give you a meaning in life, here's what's going to happen to your soul. The first thing is your soul will always be busy. You will always be busy. If your worth comes from what you've accomplished, what you're a part of, you put yourself on a cycle of never-ending resume building. 
It's an endless loop. A couple years ago, I read an article in The New Yorker by James Sorowiecki. The article is titled, The Cult of Overwork, and you might want to Google it. It's quite fascinating. In the article, what he identifies is that more often than not, the reason people overwork has nothing to do with the expectations and their demands of their employers. The reason people overwork is because of the demands and expectations they put on themselves. It's their own fault. He cites one example, a consulting firm that was noting that their people were working too much, including the weekends. And they were finding that although immediate job satisfaction was okay, over the long haul it was creating people who were discontent and burning out. So the consulting firm says, look, they made a company policy, they sent out one of those company-wide emails, you can't work on the weekends anymore, you cannot come into the office. Only to find, as Sorecki concludes, that people were home working on the weekends. Why? He says, quote, the reason we grind out 100-hour weeks for years is because it helps employees think of themselves as better, tougher, and more dedicated than everyone else. Friends, that's why we do it. We work and we overwork, whether it's work that you're paid for, work that you're not paid for, work in the home, work outside of the home. We work and overwork because we're trying to build an image for ourselves. Paul would say, if you do that, you're always busy, never resting. Not only will our souls always be busy, but Paul would also say, there's a kind of pain that you'll experience because this kind of soul living is always in competition. There's always a competitive nature to your life. And we know this to be the case. Pride, by its very essence, is essentially competitive. It's not that you want to be smart or good-looking or talented. You want to be more smart, better-looking, more talented than the people around you. And, you know, I live and work in New York City. Many of you have spent time living and working there. This also is a pretty excellent kind of culture out here in the East End, in the Hamptons. Do you realize how exhausting it is if you get your image based on competing with those around you? There's always someone smarter. There's always someone more successful. There's always someone better looking. And if your image, if my image is built upon how I'm doing in relation to other people, I'm going to be exhausted and devastated. And yet that's what happens. If we're boasting in the wrong things, we're always bitty, we're always in a spirit of competition. And the result is our souls are always fragile. Busy, competitive, and always fragile. Have you ever been to a party, maybe a kid's party, where somebody's blowing up a balloon and they're getting to that point where you know a couple more blows and the thing's going to pop and you feel like you're caught in suspense? It's a tense moment as you're waiting, trying to say, oh, should I cover my ears now? Paul would say, if this is how you're building your self-image, that's what your soul is like. Something swollen, overinflated, and ready to burst. We've experienced this. Devastated because somebody criticizes us. Or totally in despair because we've set standards for ourselves and are unable to meet them. Sometimes we meet them 
and we feel good for a week or a day, and then we see that the target has moved, and we feel an ache in our soul. But then you can't tell anyone, because part of maintaining your self-image is appearing that everything is fine. Your soul will be busy, it will be competitive, and it will always be fragile. Friends, that's the prison of pride. If your self-image, if my self-image is based primarily on what I've accomplished and who I'm connected to, there might be seasons of gratification, but in the long run, I'll be exhausted, I'll have enemies because I'm always competing, and I'll be ready to burst. So Paul would say, no more boasting in human leaders. Well, then what do we do? Where do we get a self-image? Not from the prison of pride, but what Paul says now, the freedom of humility. The freedom of humility. Where do we see this? Well, if you glance at the beginning of chapter 4, you'll see, as I paraphrase, Paul says, I've been given a job to do. Paul's a pastor. His job is to help people understand God's word. He calls it making known the mysteries of God. And Paul says that as he does his job, verse 3, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Now, the word judged, as you well know, it means to pass a verdict, to make a declaration concerning someone. And Paul says, look, as I do my work, I don't really care what your verdict is concerning me. It doesn't matter what you think of me. Now, when we hear that, I have two reactions when I hear Paul say something like that. I don't care what you think of me. I say, wow, Paul, you're kind of arrogant. That seems kind of arrogant. Like, why don't you, it should matter a little what other people think of you. But then I also think, well, Paul sounds kind of modern. Because is that not one of the modern mantras in our world today? Don't let anybody tell you how you should view yourself. The only thing that's important is what you think of you. And so I read a verse like verse 3, and I say, okay, Paul's kind of arrogant, but he also seems pretty contemporary. And yet, what's fascinating is Paul also says, if you continue reading verse 3, he doesn't even judge himself. Not only does their verdict not matter for his identity, but he doesn't even pass a verdict on himself. It is to say, if you would, your opinion of me matters very little, but also my opinion of me matters very little. So where does Paul's self-image come from? It does not come from the standards that others set for him, and it doesn't even come from the standards he set up for himself. But where does it come from? Verse 4. It is the Lord who judges me. God is the one who passes a verdict on my life. That's the verdict that matters, Paul would say. That's the ultimate verdict that shapes my identity. That's the verdict that I'm living for. Now, this is humility. The language is not there in the passage, but this is what Paul is talking about, this concept of humility. It's a self-image that does not take its identity and status from what others think or from what he himself even thinks, but only what God says. That's humility. I have a job to do. I've been given tasks. I have relationships in my life. And I'm going to use that job or those relationships not for personal gain and promotion, 
but I'm going to be using everything in my life to try to serve God and bless others. That's the freedom of humility, in which the things around me in my life are not tools to build an identity, but they're tools to serve others, and most importantly, to serve God. Now, does that mean that Paul thinks he's always right, that he's above reproach? He never gets anything wrong? No. You see there in verse 4, Paul says, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. He's acknowledging that sometimes he gets things right, other times he'll make mistakes and get things wrong. And yet, there's a remarkable peace and freedom and joy, a kind of internal steadiness that he's experiencing because the verdict that he needs does not come from God or from those around him. Excuse me, does not come from uh, those around him or himself, but it comes from God. Now, friends, let me just get practical for a second. Do you realize how freeing this could be? If your sense of self-worth did not come from yourself or from all those around you, it would mean, to use the language that Paul uses, that you would finally be freed from the constant examination of the courtroom. You would finally be free from every moment having to justify your existence with all the things that you do. Two examples. Do you remember the first Rocky movie, what some would say the only good Rocky movie? Do you remember that scene where Rocky is getting ready to fight Apollo Creed? And Adrian is trying to be encouraging, but she's not really sure he's going to do that great. And Adrian says to Rocky, do you really think you have a chance to win the fight? What does Rocky say in paraphrase, and I'm not doing the accent, but Rocky basically says, that's not the point. I don't need to win. I just need to go the distance. Because nobody has ever gone the distance with Apollo Creed. And if I do, then I'll know that I'm not just a bum from the neighborhood. Then I'll know that I'm something. I don't need to win. I just need to go to the distance because then I'll know that I'm something. Or Chariots of Fire. Do you remember that movie? about two Olympic athletes. One, Harold Abrams, was asked in the beginning of the movie, why is running so important to you? He's a sprinter. Why is sprinting such an important part of your life? Why do you meticulously train and plan and do everything that you do in order to be so fast? And Abrams says, because when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. 10 seconds to justify my existence. If I go the distance, then I know I'm not a bum. And fill in the blank. But Paul says, what if your verdict does not come from yourself? What if your verdict does not come from others? What if your verdict concerning who you are and your value comes from God himself? Then you would be free. Then you would be free to use everything in your life, not as a means to get an identity, but as a way to serve others. Now, before we move on to say, okay, well, how do we become humble? Let me offer this to you. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in uh, what is now New England. I guess at the time it was just England. Uh, 18th century uh, pastor who preached a great sermon on humility. It's meant a lot to me over the years. And in that sermon, he asks, if the gospel really takes root in your life and you become humble, what would it mean? 
What would it look like? He offers these five things. I've paraphrased, but here's what he says. He says, first, you'd be free from having to show off all the time. If you're humble, you don't need to constantly show off that passive-aggressive one-upsmanship that we always do in parties and in networks, trying to make sure that people know, yeah, we're, I got that too. Paul says, or Edward says, you don't have to show off anymore. Second, you don't have to be mean to those who are around you. You know, you can only see somebody who's prideful because they're mean to everyone around them, especially those who they know are inferior. And it's a way of actually exerting self and power so that we feel better about ourselves. We look down on those who are inferior. But Edward says humility actually allows you to treat inferiors with courtesy and affability. Edwards also says you'd be free to be flexible. You know, pride is very rigid. Everything always has to go my way. And when it doesn't go my way, I fly off the handle. I'm a wreck. I'm constantly interested in exerting my will. Humility allows me to be flexible. And even when things don't go my way, in the situations that allow for it, I can yield to others for the sake of peace. Fourth, Edwards would say, humility allows you to be free to honor others. People who are prideful are very slow to give compliments because by acknowledging virtue in someone else, they're kind of calling into question whether or not they have it. But if I'm humble, I'm free to see the best in people. I don't need to constantly level the playing field, but I can affirm and honor anyone and everyone who's around me. The truly humble are those who can give honor where honor is due. And last, if you're humble, you're free to receive criticism and confess your faults. If your self-image is based on your performance, you are devastated when people criticize. And sometimes you react violently to that criticism. But if you're humble, you can receive criticism and in turn become a better, wiser person. And confess your faults when you've made mistakes. Edward says more, but really, who doesn't want that in their life? Who doesn't want those marks of humility? So that leads us to this final question. How do we become humble? How do we become humble? This passage gives us three important tools if we're going to cultivate humility. Let me run through them. The first tool that we need is to remember that everything we have is a gift. Everything we have is a gift. You see this in verse 7, but it really binds together the whole passage. In verse 7, Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions and us, uh, the Corinthians and us, he asks a series of rhetorical questions to remind them that everything we actually have is a gift from God. He says first, who makes you different from anyone else? You think you're special? You think you're different? Who made you different? The answer is no one. What do you have that you didn't receive? The answer must be nothing. And so then he says, if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? The implied answer is there's no good reason. What's Paul saying in verse 7? Everything you have is actually a gift. For modern Western people, it's hard to hear a verse like that. Because we say, no, that's not true, Paul. 
I worked really hard to get where I am. I resourced, I networked, I connected, I went to a great school, I stayed late at work. I valued morality and I was with the right people, whatever. I worked really hard to get where I am. Sure, I've been lucky in some ways, but I worked really hard. The answer of Paul, the answer of the Bible is, yeah, sure you did. But what control did you have over where you were born? When you were born? The natural aptitudes and talents, the providential encounters that you had. What control did you have over all those things? The answer is absolutely none. And sure, yeah, you stewarded the gifts that God gave you, but he gave them to you. If that's the case, Paul would say, why are you boasting? The appropriate response to receiving a gift is not boasting, it's gratitude. And gratitude is a mark of humility. One commentator writing about this passage says, this, verse 7, is an invitation to experience one of those rare, unguarded moments of total honesty. Where in the presence of the eternal God, one recognizes that everything, absolutely everything, that we have is a gift. All is of grace, nothing is deserved, nothing is earned. When you experience grace like that, you begin to live from a posture of unbounded gratitude. Remember that it's a gift. Second tool, Paul says, keep boasting, but boast in the right things. Paul doesn't tell the Corinthians in this passage or anywhere to stop boasting. Period. And he knows that would be foolish because the human heart must boast. The human heart must derive its identity from something outside of itself. So Paul does not say stop boasting. He says stop boasting in the wrong things. Well, what are the right things to boast in? Chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I'm going to boast in the Lord. I'm going to boast in the Lord. Why? I'm going to get my value, my meaning, my image in life by associating myself with God and deriving importance and confidence from that association. Why? And here's the key. This might be the most important thing I say today. Only the Lord's verdict comes prior to any performance. The way my heart naturally works, the way your heart naturally works, is we make verdicts about ourselves and others based upon performance, how we do or do not do. Only God's verdict concerning us comes prior to any performance. That's a verdict that gives life and does not destroy. The verdict of God comes prior to any performance. Well, how do we know that? Because in Galatians 6... Paul says, I boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. What happens on the cross? Here's what happened. Jesus Christ got the verdict that you and I deserved so that we might have the judgment from God that he earned. I get his righteousness. He took upon himself my sin. The verdict concerning me should have been guilty. Instead, it's forgiven. Instead, it's beautiful. Instead, it's son or daughter. All because of what Jesus Christ has done. 
And so Paul says, yes, I boast in the Lord. Why? Because I boast in the cross. On the cross, Jesus literally took my place so that God's verdict concerning me could be righteous, beloved son or daughter. Now, it goes even further. Because the third tool that Paul gives us if we're cultivating an identity of humility, yes, we need to remember that it's a gift. We need to boast in God and the cross of Christ. But we also need to look to the future. We need to look to the future. This is astounding, and this is the part of the passage that always moves me most deeply. Verse 5, Paul says, don't judge anything now. Wait until God comes. Paul knows that any judgments made now are not just wrong, they're premature. Because only God has all the wisdom and knowledge and history to make the appropriate judgments. But that's not all he says. If you look at the end of verse 5, what does Paul say? When God makes his judgment, then everyone will receive their praise from God. Now, I read that sometimes and I gloss over it. I go quickly. But allow the weight of that to sink in for just a moment. At the end of time, when God returns, all those who are his will receive praise from him. What do we do when we come to church? We sing songs of praise. Why? Because God is totally and completely praiseworthy. He is the matchless, astounding being to whom all praise and glory belongs. And yet, Paul has this stunning audacity to say that the day is coming when God himself will praise you. Now think about that. Have you ever looked up to someone, loved them, thought they were great, and then been given a compliment by them? I mean, how does that feel? If somebody you love and value and look up to pays you a compliment, you feel good. You feel like, wow, somebody who I respect respects me. What if it's somebody who's powerful, the head of your organization, maybe a civic leader with great power? What if they were to pay you a compliment? Take that feeling, multiply it by 10 billion, and that's what it might start to feel like when it says, each will receive their praise from God. How is that going to happen? Because of the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus literally took my place so that on the cross, when God looked down, he did not see, if you would, his son. He saw Bijan's sin. So that from that time forward, whenever God looks at me, he does not see me in my sin. He sees his son. I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. And so God will praise me, not because of who I am or what I've done, but because of the work of his son that is now mine, because of faith. Each will receive their praise from God. Friends, do you know that if that's coming in your future, how freeing that is? Sure, those people don't like me and they're disappointed with me and I don't live up to my own standards. But what does it matter if the king of the universe is pleased when he looks at me. That would be freedom if that penny dropped. And that's how we started to view our lives and the lives of those around us. To be praised by the one who is most praiseworthy 
That's a reward above all rewards. Now, we're just about done. Last thing I want to say. It's an odd thing to preach because I have to do paradoxical things all the time. Here I have to stand before you and tell you, look at your life, think hard about what's going on, war against pride, and pursue humility. Which is essentially paradoxical because humility means not really thinking that much about yourself. And so a sermon about humility makes you say, am I humble? Am I doing this? Am I pursuing humility? Which I'm saying, stop thinking about yourself. So you see the challenge. And so here's what I want to say. How do you know that you're actually becoming humble? Not that you're thinking hard about yourself and having a low self-esteem. True humility means you start thinking about yourself less. And God starts to become gracious, more gracious to you. And people are becoming all that more interesting. That's what happens when humility is growing. God is becoming more gracious and people are becoming more humble. I mean, people are becoming more interesting to you. And so, the practical application of today's sermon is not so much go and try to be humble. It's find new ways to gaze upon the beauty of Christ. Find new ways to connect yourself to others. Because that's how humility is produced. Close with this. C.S. Lewis says, his great essay on humility, don't imagine that if you meet a really humble person, they would be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. He will not be thinking about humility because he will not be thinking about himself at all. So don't go from this place trying really hard to be humble. Go from here thinking about the cross. Let's come to the table to see Jesus. You gaze on him and humility becomes an inevitable byproduct. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the timely way that this passage was situated for this church at this time. For all of us, help us to see Christ this morning, he who is altogether lovely. And we ask that in that moment of seeing him, we would be both uh, convicted of our sin and yet at the same time humble and confident because we know that we're loved to the sky. Do that now as we come to the table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.